Hello and welcome to the Seattle Magazine podcast. I'm Jonathan Sposato, the owner and publisher of Seattle Magazine. We are very honored to bring to our listeners the next guest, which continues our tradition of diving deep into some of the most important and interesting issues facing our city today. Here at Seattle Magazine, we have an unwavering conviction that Seattle is a world-class city, and perhaps sometimes we just don't know it yet. Our next guest has been a dedicated member of the Seattle Police Department for more than 25 years. Known for having an intangible chemistry with other city leaders, he began his career in patrol, the mountain bike unit, and the anti-crime team before joining the Investigations Bureau as an undercover officer. He is also a master defensive tactics instructor at the Washington State Criminal Justice Training Commission. He served as assistant chief of a newly created collaborative policing bureau prior to being promoted to the deputy chief. He is now serving as the chief of police. Please welcome Seattle Police Chief Adrian Diaz. Thank you for having me on. I'm also here to introduce two of my other colleagues, executive editor-in-chief of Seattle Magazine and Seattle Business Magazine, Rob Smith, a veteran journalist who will be leading the charge in asking thoughtful and incisive questions of the chief today. And we're also joined by Seattle Magazine's chief of opportunity, the most exciting job at the magazine, Linda Lowry. And she has been a prolific booster and lover of our city for so long, committed to elevating Seattle's stature across a wide spectrum of activities, among which is giving Rob and I the honor of collaborating with her. Really just excited to have this conversation, Chief Diaz. You know, one of the things that Rob and I and Linda are very proud of was that the very first rebooted issue of Seattle Magazine, we put former Chief Carmen Best on the cover. And the idea there was that we wanted to humanize her. We really wanted to uh, show the whole person that that this was not just someone that you commonly see in uniform on the news, that she was also a mother and a grandmother, a woman, and, you know, strong and all of these great things. And, and, and so, so in some ways, we're continuing a tradition by speaking with you today. And I want to uh, say, Rob, you, you have some questions as it relates to former Chief Best, right? Chief, thank you for being here very much. So what did you learn from Carmen Best? You know, actually, I had uh, she was my lieutenant when I was working on anti-violence gang issues with youth um, in our investigations bureau, and uh, we hit it off. Um, we really got to know each other, spent a lot of time uh, learning. And uh, when I made a push with our chief at that time, Chief Diaz, to create a community outreach unit, and uh, I suggested that Carmen best be uh, moved over to uh, the community outreach unit. And he, he took that information and actually made that happen. And uh, and honestly, I think it was the best development for her. And it was also the best development for me um, on just really understanding community issues and really the, the changing dynamics of our city. And uh, I think we've be- really became almost like brother and sister. And we've learned to just kind of develop our skills together. It was a great mentor and uh, I've had a lot of good mentors, you know, in the past, but she's one that, like, will always be forever at the top. Now, when she resigned in the summer of 2020 and you took over on an interim basis, that was a pretty tense time. What what was going through your mind once you realized you were going to become the interim police chief? Yeah, I had been the deputy chief for one month, and I was thinking that I was going to— she was going to end up being a chief for a couple of years. I was going to end up learning, uh, you know, how to fill that role. And uh, when she decided to retire, I would hopefully make a case that I could be the next chief. 
but it was going to be a two-year process away from then. And uh, she decided she was going to retire. And that, that weekend before I, it was announced, which was August 12th, she said, you're taking over. And uh, I've, I've talked to the mayor and you, you've got this. And I, you know, I said, you know, we'd already had a little bit of conversation beforehand. So I said, okay, I'm ready. And I know I can do this job. I've been mentored by some amazing chiefs. And uh, I knew the the hurdles that I was going to be faced with. You know, it was a discussion of 50% reduction of the department. It was already losing officers and staffing. We were experiencing a violent crime that was starting to increase. Uh, so I already knew the challenges ahead. And then that wasn't including, um, we were still dealing with uh, protests and riots. And we were also uh, challenged with a consent decree. I felt like I had a lot of understanding and knowledge that was going to make me uh, ready for to take under these these immense challenges. And uh, but I, you know, initially you think, okay, I got a plan for the next six months, and uh, and gosh, everything just continued to to uh, you know uh, unfold and really try to adapt to the new changes. And uh, I I knew that at that point. I was going to want to do this job, you know, for for longer till I fixed the department, until I get to the department where people feel like the community we're serving the community in the best manner. Are you at that point right now? We're we still have a long way to go, and honestly, it's the stuff that impacted us in 2020. You know, we had to I had to publicly come out and acknowledge that you know we created great impacts in the community, and I had to apologize for those impacts. Uh, it's also being able to say, uh, you know look, we're going to learn from this and really change the direction of where we're going. And we're already putting innovative stuff in, in, in the department. We created the SPD before the badge. We're doing an equity, accountability, and quality initiative. It's all focused on relational policing, um, which is really my kind of baby is really about how do we build relationships? Because everything that we do in life is always about relationships. And that's really probably what propelled me into the chief job because I had had long established relationships in the community. I had been invested in it. It wasn't like, hey, I, just, I want this job. I'm just going to apply and, and make myself known. It was, I had these relationships. And I really think that that's what's really helped us through the challenging times. People have had that trust in me to lead the department. That's great. Um you know, one of the things that I often do uh, when I'm walking around town is that I do, if, if, if the opportunity is right, I will go up to a police officer and actually um, tell them how much I appreciate their service. And I say that completely knowing full well that, you know, maybe I don't know much about the person and, and the officer may not know anything about me. Uh, uh, but but I do think it's important to to understand that we're actually neighbors first and that we're all living in the same community. Um Forgive my editorializing, but there's a lot of good and bad with the way that we all communicate these days with social media, how ideas get viral and how memes happen. Um, and I think that sometimes that context collapse can be very harmful to all of us uh, and our ability to see the real person. And so I always take an opportunity to uh, say to someone, you know, hey, I appreciate your service and we appreciate yours, uh, Chief Diaz. You know, you mentioned to me before that you've been to other countries to learn more about their policing practices. Can you please share your experience and what you learned? Yeah, so I had an opportunity uh, around 2004. I was uh, just starting my time as a Latino community liaison for the department, and I went to my first meeting. Uh, The consulate of Peru was at the meeting and said, hey, if you want to learn about my community, 
you need to learn and understand the policing that happens in their community. I, I didn't think anything of it because I didn't think like I would get to go an opportunity to go to Peru. My boss at the time was Gil Kurlikowski, and he said, uh, he called me into his office and said, hey, uh, the consulate asked a question, uh, would you like to go? And I said, are you serious? Like, I didn't think that that would be possible. And uh, uh, it actually it was a trip. So I spent a little about a, about a, almost a five-week period of time in Peru. It was a, actually a life changer for me. Um, really gave me a whole different perspective on how to look at policing uh, just differently. And what's fascinating is I worked with the anti-drug units and anti-terrorism units in Peru and got to travel all throughout all areas, the Amazon to the Andes, uh, to Machu Picchu and Juana Picchu. And, and it was really just such a, an eye-opening experience. I, I got to be involved in a program called Colibri. It was named after a bird, and it's actually their foster care system. And in that experience, I was wondering, like, why is the police department running their foster care system? And they explained to me that, hey, they said, what we find is our youth are getting picked up by the, the terrorism groups or the, the drug runners to, to work for them. And so for us, it's really about engaging them early on, giving them an opportunity to help educate them, and then eventually get them into a job into the police department. And, and their academy for a lot of uh, the officers is three years long. It's almost given them a college education. And uh, so hearing that was like, I didn't ever think of it in that manner, but it really just opened my eyes up to this prevention and intervention work that I had not thought about. Because I really, in, in my career, was focused on on arresting the bad guys, doing the tactical work and trying to make sure that, you know, we're, you know, going out and, and, and doing and making a difference that in the kind of enforcement cycle. And uh, this was actually a completely different approach. It was a start of... Uh, when I came back from that experience, I had gone to Fourth and Pike, and I, had, I was driving around because that's where I was spending most of my time patrolling. Come around a corner, and I see a couple people in a drug transaction, and uh, I had them come over to my car. They knew me. I always treated people with respect and dignity, and so they said, "Oh, Officer Diaz, you know, you you know what's going on." I said, "Oh, that's good. Why don't you open up your hand? I know what's in your hand." And and they did, and it was point uh, two grams of rock cocaine. And uh, and I had just gotten done working in in on drug anti drug units in Peru, so you're dealing with like close to billions of dollars worth of cocaine in the fields, literally, you know, uh, of, of coca coca plants, and you're you know having this whole experience, and you're wondering like, I I have got this person that's probably going to end up doing more jail time than the person that's actually distributing it, and it was in this idea that. I can actually make a difference in a different way. And so that really helped me just change the dynamics of what I do and how I do it. And it really embraced community. And it wasn't that I didn't embrace community before. It was just, a, it just made me look at community differently. So it was the best experience I ever had. I apply those principles every single day from the time that I uh, started doing youth work, uh, started doing community work, um, to all the way as I went up in the cha in chain of command to be an assistant chief, to being deputy chief and the chief. You know, I feel like it's just something that you have to live by. And it's always about service and helping others. It's always about making sure that, you know, you treat people with just respect. And it's just, it's humanity, it's compassion. So I agree. Exactly. Exactly. And you were just in Ireland as well with, with Carmen Best. 
I was, and I, you know, it's actually interesting because I spent time uh, with the different commissioners from different agencies uh, all across the world, and that experience actually changed a couple of different thought processes in my head because many of these agencies have an academy that's one year to three years long, and uh, and these are agencies that don't give their personnel a gun either. And our academy is roughly about four and a half to five months long, and we give a gun hoping that we're going to have better outcomes. And so it's really about changing the dynamics of how we train and how we give the people the tools in our department, the skill sets that we want to police in our city and safely. And so just listening to those other commissioners also talk about the same challenges that we're facing. But, you know, one of the things that I do get is is that they provide just better, really, really more inclusive training. And so... That's really what we're trying to do. It's really what we're um, uh, moving forward with the, some of my initiatives on on our SBU Before the Badge as well. Uh, Chief, you had mentioned that morale was pretty low when you took over. What's the morale like now, and what have you done, and what can you do as a police chief to fix that? Yeah, so, you know, when you look at... When we started over, I don't think we could go any lower than where we were at. I mean, we had uh, lost a precinct. We had uh, gained the precinct back. Everyone was losing officers. Many of them lost their squad mates, their friends, uh, to either other agencies or to leaving the profession completely, retirement. Um, We've lost 525 officers, and that was a really, really big challenge uh, to hurdle because you're having officers having to do really more work with the less resources. And a lot of units had to be abrogated. I had to put people back into patrol and really kind of just say, look at what are our core functions that we um, need to do. But when I look at, at just the evolution of where we're at, I still feel like we've got a low morale, but we're 10 times, just 100 times better than what we were in 2020. You know, I, I look at the when we have special events, we bring in all the officers for roll call. They're, they're laughing, they're joking, they're having a good time. And it feels more in that, that where they're not in this kind of solemn, just look of just kind of a, the deer in the headlights kind of look where they just don't know what's going on um, and what's impacting them. And so I think that, that is, that's a step in the right direction. But one of the things that we're really focused on is wellness. You know, one of, so I've actually have, you know, we've got contracts with uh, clinical psychologists that help actually at each of our precincts. Um, sometimes they'll do ride-alongs uh, with some of the officers. they check in with some of the officers. Uh, we have um, also have three wellness dogs. So I have two in an operation side and one in that it works in an investigation side. Uh, so they're there for support. And, you know, what, what, better place to work in and have an environment where you have dogs, four-legged creatures that are literally <laughs> wanting to just bundle up to you. And um, we do a lot of stuff on fitness and wellness, uh, and nutrition, because we know all of those are, have, have a good impact on, on um, people's careers. But it's really simple to what we're, what we're pushing. My, my simple thought is, is that if we have a healthy officer, we're going to have healthy outcomes in the community. And uh, it's really about kind of building that resiliency up in an officer that from day one, we know that they're passionate about serving people, that whenever they end their career, that they have that same passion that drives them. We'll spend a lot more time investing in wellness. In fact, I'm going to hire a person at a command level position uh, to be an executive director of wellness. And uh, we're already working with, you know, some of the best people in the, around the country that have done this work. 
and really trying to figure out how we're going to evolve this position into what we want in this in the city. Okay. You have said that you wanted to hire 125 new officers every I think you and the mayor said that every year for the next 5 years. Is the wellness piece a, a legitimate recruiting tool in that? And how difficult is it to hire 125 officers given the last few years of law enforcement? Well, our highest uh, hiring year was 110. So even before 2020, 125 officers was a pretty extraordinary feat. But we've actually streamlined our processes. We're, we're in the process of, of really doing a really good job of recruiting. Um, we have the incentives. We worked with the city council on getting incentives to, to help us out. But when we look at uh, um, hiring 125 officers, it, we actually built a program called SB Before the Badge that is actually the front end of an academy before the academy actually starts uh, that actually is focused on that wellness and resiliency. And uh, I do think it is a selling point. People want to know that their their company or their organization values their wellness. And uh, it doesn't mean that that's the sole reason why somebody's going to go to a police department. But, you know, being a major city, being that we have major, you know, city crime issues, you know, that those are also factors that draw people into it. Yes, you do look at, you know, sometimes people look at agencies that have got take-home cars. They've got, you know, some of the other little perks uh, of, of um, that we might not have. But I think that when we actually care about people, care about their wellness, and that's the reason why I encourage people to just say thank you to officers because at the end of the day, those are things that, you know, when you feel appreciated, people will value. You know, I, I'm wondering if I could sort of follow up with that. Um, you know, oftentimes Rob and I will talk about on the more business side, you know, in, in, in private industry, we'll talk about company culture. We'll talk about sometimes the differences in generation between, say, Gen uh, Gen X employees versus millennial employees or Gen Z uh, and how they value different things or things around whether people want to work from home or remote, you know, uh, or be in an office and, and, and aggregate together. Clearly, uh, you know, um, policing is, is, a, is a slightly different segment. But overall, like maybe I think some things are common, which is probably in your position, you can almost predict by how, how well a certain candidate or a cadet is doing. Uh, what are some insights on what causes a police officer to be exceptional long-term? What are some of those attributes? You know, that, that's a good question because I don't know if I have a good answer uh, for what it actually makes somebody exceptional. I look at my career when I started out in the job. I was close to. I was 21 going in 22 years old, so I was young officer. And uh, and how I looked at the world then is completely different than how I look at the world now. And it was actually different than how I looked just 10 years into the job. You know, some people said, "Well, would you have hired yourself back then?" And, and I said, you know, that's a, that's the, that's the million dollar question. (laughs) Like that, you know, is that the exceptional candidate that you were? And I, I might not have been, and, uh, I might not have hired myself, but I feel like now as I've evolved and I was thinking more like policing is on the tactical side to now being more community driven and really, you know, understanding and being more inclusive with everything, my thoughts, there's, there's no right candidate. There's no right, but what you are looking for is number one, somebody that comes in with passion, somebody that's respectful, someone that has high level of integrity, 
someone that understands equity and making sure that they they provide that to the community and so you're you're looking at really that compassion that empathy that that most aren't necessarily graded on when you actually look at a candidate and so you have to see beyond what you know the application says you have to look at what they're doing and who they are as a person and that's that's really what what we're hoping to see out of out of somebody that wants to do this job and it, and it goes back to what you were talking about relationships so how important is it for you and the police department for you to have outstanding relationships with the city council or the mayor? For me, it's extremely important. And I think that's uh, where Chief Bess had noted that, you know, she felt like they, no one was listening to her. And uh, it was a time for me to really work um, and try to understand the city council's dynamics and really spend a lot of time uh, building those co- uh, conversations up. And many of them knew me because of my work in the community. And so I did have a little bit of, of you know, savings, that you, I guess you could say, with the city council because there was a lot of understanding of just how community-oriented I was. So that was important, but it's also taken a couple of years to also establish that level of credibility as well. You know, when they ask about stuff and I'm able to answer it and be able to establish like what direction I'm moving the department, that matters as well. Is the mayor's evolved too? Like that's a relationship with the mayor and I'm having constant conversations with the mayor. I'm having constant conversations with not only city council, you have accountability partners. So you have the community police commission, you have the office inspector general and the office of police accountability. And so you're, you're constantly trying to nurture the relationships uh, just to make sure the department is moving in the right direction. I was really excited to hear that you talked about bringing on someone to help manage self-care within your police force. But what I want to know is what do you do for your self-care? You know, that's interesting. I I was just talking uh, to our morning recruits on SPD Before the Badge about uh, just taking care of themselves because this is what I do. I actually, uh, I I get up in the morning. I typically will read about 10 to 15 minutes. Usually it's on some level of stoic philosophy. And and I go and work out. And I routine, doesn't matter if I got a late call out to a, a homicide scene, no matter what, that is my morning routine. And then I get up from my day, do my day. If there's any, you know, things or any issues uh, in my day, I'll go back to reading a little bit. And at the end of the day, I usually read another five to 10 minutes, usually some sort of daily roundup on, on philosophy. Um, I always carry a coin on my in my pocket that is related to, to philosophy. The one right now is Amor Fati. And uh, so it's just a philosophical uh, uh, saying. And uh, the other things that I like to do is... is you know, I, I have three kids, so I spent a lot of time at their sporting events. And I didn't want to be that dad that, like, was yelling at his kids. So I learned to take up photography. And so you want to capture them, like, making them think that they're, the you know, winning a Super Bowl or winning, you know, <laughs> some MLS World Cup or, you know, whatever it is. And uh, so I, I started taking photos for them. And uh, I started, I just loved it. I really just started understanding and embracing it. And uh, so in my free time, I will spend time taking photos. I love doing moonshots. I've got to do some for the sporting teams in the local area. So the UW Huskies, I got to do some of their football games. I've gotten to do um, some of the Sounders games. It's exciting to be on the field in the action and still feel like you're capturing things. And it's just that one moment in time where you just wanted to like see people's expressions. And uh, I think that's been a nice healing part of my daily life. 
and I still don't, people go, gosh, you have really good photography. And I'm like, I'm just a beginner. Like I really just, it's just that moment. Cause I, I, I tried to shoot the, the super moon and it came out so bad. <laughs> and I was like, that just tells you, like, it doesn't matter. Like you, even if you try, sometimes you just, you'll, you'll fail. And I was like, that that's a once in a lifetime shot. I couldn't get it. Yeah. So. I actually think it's really great. Uh, number one, your vulnerability and able to share that about your personal life. But number two, I, I love this idea that that someone who's highly s- successful or exceptional, I think it's always good to have something that you're sort of failing at <laughs> as a humble <laughs> reminder to keep you grounded um, that, that there's still a lot to learn. So yeah, appreciate that answer, Chief Diaz. Thank you, everyone, for listening to part one of our conversation with Chief Diaz. We hope you'll stay tuned for part two, where you'll hear his thoughts on alternative police strategies, including his views on unarmed police officers, the surprising drop in violent crime, the shift in culture of the SPD, Chief Diaz's reactions to national news concerning police brutality, as well as our perception of safety in Seattle and how it might not be rooted in the data. Thank you for listening to the Seattle Magazine podcast. You can always find us on seattlemag.com. Look for new episodes approximately every two weeks on our website. A special thank you to the entire Seattle Magazine staff and to podcast producer Nick Patry. Contact Lisa Lee at lisa at seattlemag.com for partnership opportunities. Until next time, let's keep celebrating Seattle.